0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Good morning, everyone. we glad to see you today. We're ready to find our places and continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're doing this again today because uh, Jeff is uh, on vacation, sort of. He's, he's working. In a sense, he's going to see his parents in Connecticut. and That's a ministry trip. Both of his parents are having some health issues, and, uh, and he has their, their son up there also. So he'll be out this week and next week. So if you come to this class next week, you'll, we'll do uh, Lord willing, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And I think Jeff will be back after, after that. So that means today we are doing Ecclesiastes uh, chapter four. And as always, I'm delighted and surprised to see what the Lord, what the Lord's Word uh, has for us, and I'm excited about what is in this in this chapter for us today. It is a, uh, uh, it's literally a turning point in the book, and it's going to be interesting. I, I think. It has been for me and I think it will be, be for you. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll begin. Our Father, we are so thankful now to be together and that means much to us as your people that we can gather here in safety as we hear about distress around around the world. So we thank you for, for our gathering today and that we gather on the Lord's day and we celebrate the resurrection of Christ and his victory purchased for us by his substitutionary death by his blood that was shed for us and it is in him and his righteousness that we rest and that we find our standing in grace before you and we give you our thanks for your word that you have given to us if you had not revealed yourself to us we would know nothing of you so thank you for revealing yourself to us through Christ and through your word and now we ask you would minister to us by your spirit enlighten our hearts that are Tired and maybe dull today because of a long week, but give us the life of your word today. Thank you for each person today. I pray you would encourage each one in the way that they need to be encouraged by your word and by your spirit today. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read chapter four in just a moment, but I want to set it up for you just a little bit. Uh, It really is a... Turning point in the book that is really delightful to see. Um, before Solomon has or had this me complex, it's me, 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 and I'm doing this, I'm gonna make this happen. It's all about it's all about me. Um, but in chapter four, something happens. I mean, I think it's God's grace in his life as he's as he's as he's done this um, this search for the meaning of work and meaning of his life. And it's always just been focused on himself. But in chapter four, something wonderful happens and he begins to realize there's other people involved in this search and in this world. And as uh, uh, my new best friend, David Gibson, says, uh, "It, it goes from me to we. And folks, that is a very healthy transition to make and i was thinking about that uh, even this morning you may be surprised how just in time bible study this is i was up this morning just thinking about this again and, and um, probably because i should have thought about it three days ago but i didn't get to it three days ago but but you think about what solomon has learned in this in this journey you know why is work so toilsome a oh, lot that's a why is work so hard why does it seem so meaningless and um, and finally uh, in God's grace he, he comes to understand that uh, that work is, is hard and difficult because of the curse uh, and because of death it's not going to get you too far but you can come to rejoice in the work that you do not because of all that you can accomplish by it but because it's a gift from God he gives you this work to do and and so that's a, that is the grace of God, isn't it, that he would see that. Uh, he searched for it and God used his search, but, but God revealed that to him. But now he sees another component that I think is, it makes a lot of sense to us because if, if we read into to the, the change of heart he has and his love for God has been rekindled and he, he loves God uh, again in a, in a new, fresh way, I think, in his repentance, uh, through his search so it makes sense that if you take the, the the great commandment love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and then as Jesus said and the second one is like it, like unto it uh, love your neighbor as yourself then it makes sense now that God is showing him another avenue of his grace and that is through other people through his people and so um we're not surprised to see this happen. This is, more of an ex- this is more of an expression of God's grace to him as he seeks to find meaning and purpose uh, in his life. So you can see the... Uh, I forgot which one of my helpful commentators gave me these four problems, but it's a good way to, uh, to divide this chapter. The is not long. It's only 16 verses, but we'll have plenty to look at here. So you notice these four verses, these four sections. And interestingly, there's a better than proverb in each one of them. They may not look like proverbs, but the Hebrew guy says they are, so we're going to go with, with that. Uh, so each one of them has one of these better than evaluations. Uh, Solomon talks about something that's not right, and he says now there's here's something that's better. So that's That kind of marks out these four problems. Now I was... Just uh, wondering about this, um, well, never mind, I'm I'm getting ahead ahead of myself. So let's read it. And what I want you to do is is listen and and look for the expressions of of this others. It looks like in this chapter he's turning his focus from the inward navel gazing, and he's looking outward now and realizing there's other people involved. So, let me just read it to us. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who is not dead. been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun that's uh, the first section now uh, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor this also is vanity and a striving after wind the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls Uh, full of toil and striving after wind. And then the third section. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and, and an unhappy business two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil for if they fall one will lift up his fellow but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no other has not another to lift him up again if two lie together they keep warm but how can one keep warm alone and though a man's and though a man might prevail against one who is alone two will withstand him a threefold cord is not quickly broken in the fourth section of government. Better, is, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who, who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely there is also this also is vanity and striving after win. After reading 13 through 16, you say, "I have no idea what that's about." Well, neither do I. So I hope we don't get to it uh, today. But, well, I got some, I had to put something in the notes, so I put some things there that that our commentators help us help us to. Okay well let's uh, so did you see the, the idea of others and community and um, it's all through there and, and 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 they're all this is all connected when well, nobody seems to know how that last part is connected but um, but the other the other sections are clearly connected about the contrast between people that are alone and people that that have others in their lives and uh, so let's uh, let's dig into that so first is, uh, the problem of oppression and I gave you a note there to, to compare back to 3.16 he's already dealt with uh, he's already dealt with this in the previous chapter about injustice so 3.16 says moreover I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness so he's, got, he's, he's dealt with this kind of general idea of injustice and now he's given us a very specific example of that, of this idea of, uh, of oppression that, that he's observed. It, it's interesting that, um, notice these little words at the beginning, again, so that, that's a, a, uh, a, a, a signal to us, he's gonna tell us something new, he's, talk, he's got a new, new idea there. And notice he's looking, he's been observing life, and now he's observing now. And he's seeing people that are being oppressed by more powerful people than than they are. I just wonder. Um, wow, well, I, I just my Bible reading is taking me through uh, through First Kings now, and um, and it, it, those first eleven chapters are about Solomon's life, and he had tens of thousands of slaves that worked for him, and I wonder if he's thinking about himself there, maybe, maybe he's. I don't know you know he's maybe seeing maybe he's been out on one of his work projects building his big house or something and, and he's seeing these uh, these slaves that are uh, that these aren't Israelites these are people that are, these are folks that have been captured in wars and uh, so you don't know what's going on in, in Solomon's life he, he doesn't give any great confession of his part of any kind of oppression but notice this, uh, uh, this definition. Oppression is accumulation, the seeking after profit, and nothing's wrong with either one of those things in particular. But Oppression is accumulation, the seeking after profit, without regard to the nature, needs, and rights of others. Um, what we're going to see in this, in this chapter, in this first section, oppression is, uh, if we need to think about this for ourselves, Oppression is looking down the ladder on people that are below us. In a few minutes, we're going to see that we can sin that way. But in a few minutes, we're going to see we can also sin looking up at people that are above us on the ladder. But um, this is a the common theme in the law and the prophets, and here's just I think three uh, reminders to us: Leviticus 19:13, "Do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back wages." that was particularly for the day laborer that worked all day and they didn't have any they're literally living hand to mouth and if they didn't get paid that night they didn't have anything so so Moses is real clear about you know, treating them right and not oppressing them and then one of the prophets Zachariah 7:10, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless the alien or the poor and we often see these four groups and they are you know, they in they have no protector they have no uh, no one to, to guard them from oppression. So they're, so God is very particularly concerned about them being cared for properly. And then Proverbs uh, 14.31 He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. So there's that I think we looked at that verse in our study of Proverbs. There's that unusual unity between God and, and uh, the poor and those that are being those that are being oppressed. Um, notice that he's looking at them and he, he really sees two things. I just pointed out one thing in, in the notes there. He sees two things. One, he sees their tears. Um, and that shows a tenderness, I think, with the mighty, mighty King Solomon. He's, he notices, I think it means, he may just be metaphorically, but I think perhaps he really did see the tears of some people that had been oppressed. And, uh, and that, uh, that shows his compassion. But notice, let's get back to the text there. Notice two things. He says, uh, And behold the tears, in four four one, And behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So he saw two things. He saw their tears because of the distress uh, that they were under. And then he also saw their helpless condition under the ruthless oppression of people that had more political power, financial power, whatever it, whatever it may have been. And notice he repeats the same concern. There's no one to comfort them. He saw their tears, it moved him because there was no one to comfort them and then he saw their saw the pain of their oppression and again he saw there was uh, no one to comfort them. Um, oh and the, the other thing uh, again I saw all the oppressions and the commentators point out that that just ex- magnifies how pervasive the oppression was uh, that he was that he was looking at. Well so I think that's a good thing for for uh, uh, for Solomon it shows his compassion. But of course uh, a great model of compassion in the, in the observation of hurting people is our Lord Jesus Christ and I just gave a couple of, uh, of examples of that but you can probably think of others one Mark 7, these were just kind of back to back in Mark 7 and Mark 8 um, this, was, this was the one um, I think he was a deaf man Hmm. I should have read that more closely. The deaf man that in Jesus, what do you have it there, Teresa? What did he do? He yeah. he put he made mud or something. No, that's he not. Put his fingers in the man's ears yeah. and spitting. He touched his tongue, looking up to heaven, um, and he prayed for him, and immediately his ears were opened, his, his difficulty was removed, and he to Okay, so this is healing healing the deaf man, the yeah, the deaf man. But it says there real clearly that he looked up to heaven and he he uh, sighed mm. or he groaned. It's the same word in uh, Romans 8 that the creation is groaning and we're groaning. So just to show his, you know, his uh, concern for this man, he's, he's groaning. And then just uh, a few verses later in Mark 8, um, that's the feeding of the 5,000, I think. So remember he looked on the, of the thousands, it was getting dark, and he had compassion on them because they didn't have any food. But can you think of a couple of others that are really even, probably even, have more clarity of Jesus' compassion looking on hurting people? John. Well, okay. Tell us about that, Mark. Jesus wept. Okay, good. Jesus wept because well, death. Um, Lazarus said, God, would, uh, I think he was weeping. Yeah. And then he lamented over Jerusalem mm-hmm. when he came to Jerusalem. Okay. Well, we could do a whole series on why did Jesus weep, but he did. Yeah. He wept. And I think we, we can't minimize his compassion and concern uh, for that, for his, for, the, for his friends and for the death of his friend. And then the one I thought about, Mark, you mentioned also is looking over Jerusalem. And that was the one where he wept and he said, "How often I would have gathered you like a like a hen gathers her her chicks." Um, the one thing that is that adds the beauty of Christ here, I think, is that the Hebrew word for comfort doesn't just mean uh, speaking comfort, comforting words. Now that is a very important way to comfort people, and we should never minimize that. But the Hebrew word literally means. Um, um, it not only means the compassionate and understanding words, it means that, but it means much more. It actually means comfort that provides tangible relief. And, uh, and I thought it was really sweet that, uh, that this is the word used in, in uh, the 23rd Psalm, 20, Psalm 23.4. Y'all know Psalm 23.4. Uh, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. So here's a shepherd. Uh, whatever all he does, and we know with the rod and the staff, he's he's guiding them, he's protecting them from, you know, from the from the the uh, animals, uh, their predators. So, uh, I think obviously God's word to us today is, when we see people that are being oppressed and taken advantage of. We should seek to deliver them from their oppression if we can. uh, And speaking words of comfort, but we should seek to to uh, take action. Uh, I'm glad our church has a benevolence fund, so we can not not only can we call people and say, "I'm sorry about your illness or your whatever," but you know, let us let us help you with that. Well, then, uh, the better than intensifies his feelings of horror, horror. Of uh, seeing the oppression he says it'd be better to be dead he said no it'd be better to not even been born so that just shows you know the revulsion that he has I, I think well I don't know I didn't look at it closely I don't know if he's referring to it'd be better for those folks if they had never been born so they wouldn't have to go under be oppressed or is he saying this is so distraught to me. It would be better if I had not been born. You know, I'm distressed so much by this. I, maybe when you read that, um, who do you think of in the Old Testament? Job. Yeah, Job. Let's look at it. It's in Job 3. This makes me excited about studying Job. Too. Job and the Ecclesiastes are companion, companion books that give us a... a Another expression of God's wisdom after the book of Proverbs. So in Job 3, I think we'll just start with verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. And we could go on. He continues the, the thought. So Job is actually experiencing this kind of, it's not really oppression, but he's experiencing enormous uh, trial and, and suffering. Uh I don't think Solomon is, ex- he's not actually experienced it, but he's having the same kind of thought, even as he observes it uh, in the lives of others. Jeremiah had the same, the same thought in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 20. Well, any you other know, thoughts about oppression? What is our moral responsibility toward people that are, that are being oppressed? So now we're, looking, we're on the ladder of whatever we're looking down at people that may be considered below us. Be careful that we. Um, well, one of the things that I think we, we see here is, um, if, as as uh, Solomon said, "What does a man gain by all the evil at which he toils under the sun?" And I think now he's beginning to say, "If you've got to hurt people in your toil to gain things, that exasperates." the meaningless of toil, even more. In fact, it makes it not meaningless. It makes it, uh, it, makes it sinful. Well, let's look now at the problem of rivalry uh, and envy. So uh, oppression is unrighteous accumulation from those below us on the ladder, but there's sinful behavior even looking up above us on the, the ladder that we are uh, climbing. And in the same way, uh, uh, if to- if work is meaningless just by its by its normal activity, then oppressing people in our work is evil. But if there's rivalry and envy involved in our work as a motivation, that makes it even even more so. And and notice what what's happening here. Um, Solomon sees new dimensions of this problem when you factor other people into it. So the It's really beautiful here, I think, that that what he sees that can be a problem that is other people involved in his life really becomes uh, God's blessing and God's solution, having other people involved. So look at um, um, that note I have from somebody, in Provan, in pursuing out of envy the neighbor above us on the ladder we inevitably step on the head of the neighbor below us. So maybe in some ways there's the same spirit here. If we're climbing a ladder, and our uh, and, we're, and, and our goal is to is to climb the ladder of social status or economic well-being or whatever it may be, then we got to be careful going up. But even as we go up, we're stepping on people below us. So we want to be careful uh, about that. And the the point is. Um, if our focus is ourselves then of course we're gonna step on others to get there and we're going to be envious of those that are above us because we want to get uh, get below and um, get above them you can see the, the Hebrew word uh, expresses strong emotion and interestingly in the Greek and the New Testament is the word zeal but the Hebrew word expresses strong emotion of desire to obtain the property of another um, so that, that would be envy and jealousy I see the 10th commandment is that isn't it um, and of course that's carried over into the New Testament very much but, but envy can also be expressed through delight in the downfall of another so we're looking up at people that are maybe more successful than we are and maybe we don't want what they want but we have a temptation to be happy if they don't have it either look at Look at uh, Proverbs twenty-four. Proverbs twenty-four. This is a uh, uh, this is a very strong passage, I think. Proverbs twenty-four seventeen. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from you. So that's a clear admonition. That if you have an enemy, you shouldn't rejoice when they fail or when they fall. But we can do that with people that are not our enemies. I, I thought about maybe it's not the word enemy, maybe it's opponent somebody that's on the run above us and we, want, we wish we were there and um, uh, so if this is true for an enemy that it's wrong and how much more is it true for those that are above us I, I want to read uh, David Gibson he has a, a really good way of saying this consider the old saying any friend can share your sorrows and failures but it takes a true friend to share your joys and successes. That is exactly right. When we see a friend succeed and make things work, we smile and pat him on the back, but deep down we envy him because he has made us feel worse about ourselves. So when we're back to that self-centeredness, you know, this is all about me, then we're going to be concerned if people are successful around us. I'm going to confess my sin in a minute. Uh, I know David Gibson and I struggle with this. Maybe you do too. Listen to what else he says. Uh, uh, When our friend falls flat on his face, our sinfulness is such that we can watch him mess up. And even as we hug him, his failure makes us feel so much better about ourselves when our friend falls flat on his face, or maybe just trips a little bit, you know, maybe somebody else in your sphere of influence or in your company or in your church, or when our friend trips up or or has some kind of difficulty or failure, our sinfulness is such that we can watch him mess up. And even as we hug him, his failure makes us feel better about ourselves. Uh, Folks, I don't like that kind of introspection that makes me think about that. I I, I wrote out my confession here because I didn't know if i get it just right. Um, um, I'm deeply embarrassed and ashamed of this sin because when it comes out of my heart, and sometimes it just comes out without me even going to look for it, it's just, just that sense of... Well, when this kind of sin comes out of my heart, it reveals my self-centered focus and lack of genuine love for my neighbor or my brother. Hmm. My only response is, is Paul's response in Romans 7. Oh uh, wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from the body of this death? So, um, if you struggle with that too, it, it really that those things reveal our heart and how much we need the Lord Jesus to give us new hearts. Anybody want to anybody stand and confess for sins? Anybody have another thought about that? Okay. Um, so uh, let's see. Back to Ecclesiastes 4. So I think this is David Gibson. He says, uh, when we stop and think about serving and loving our neighbor, it prevents two extremities, idle laziness and manic busyness. Um, So I think what we're seeing here with, with Solomon is by the awareness of people around him, he is finding a solution to his vanity and work. Stop focusing on yourself and uh, start loving and serving others. Uh, You know, it's it's interesting, because when we read back in chapter 2, where he was one depressed, frustrated guy. He was angry, he hated life. Uh, He was really in an emotional, psychological, spiritual down. And I was thinking about that. Well, no wonder, Solomon, if your whole focus is always yourself, uh, you're taking a depression pill everything every time you look at your navel and require the world to be centered around you and so no wonder now that that uh, that as he's beginning to look outwardly and look at other people that his uh, his eyes are seeing things differently uh, because his heart is reflecting rightly on them and his depression is lifting I uh, uh, and, and just the more no wonders uh, to to connect the dots. No wonder our culture is experiencing an epidemic of depression. Because we've been taught it's all about you. Just so you're happy, you're going to be fine. Well, if everybody in the whole world does that, we're in trouble. Because not everybody's going to, anyway. So no wonder there's an epidemic of depression in our culture today. I had a delightful conversation on Friday with an 18-year-old young lady. And uh, she's not in our church, but... She has just really seen this um, she works as a as a as a table server at a local restaurant and she said for so long I've struggled with depression but now I'm serving tables, and I have to come outside myself to care for these people even if I'm just serving pizza or whatever and she said my depression is gone because I'm forced to go and look outwardly to other to other people well uh, so Solomon is, uh is seeing uh, beautiful means of God's grace and having others uh, having others around him when he talks about the the uh, lazy notice I, I call him uh, no, the, the lazy fool kills himself by self-starvation becoming cannibals of themselves he this is such such a stark um, Statement that Solomon makes in Ecclesiastes four or five: the fool so- folds his hands and eats his own flesh. That's that's a uh, a parable apparently that he that he may have got from somebody else. A lot of times, folding the hands is just a way that is the Bible's way of resting. But sometimes in the Book of Proverbs, folding one's hands is a way of being lazy, just not wanting to do anything. And notice what he says there that. Um, well, the, the wise person is diligent, and if you add the, the care for others, wisdom is working so that you can care for others. The fool um, is lazy, and uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't earn anything for himself, so he's not able to care for others. So he's, uh, so all he has is himself. Um, let's see. Yeah, okay. Well, here's David Gibson again. He's just got some uh, good things to say. He says, uh, Laziness is a way of hating your neighbors. You have nothing to give them. The preacher makes deliberately an extreme statement to illustrate the corrosive effects of inverted access. Instead of embracing life and giving himself to others, the sluggard gives himself to himself. Instead of embracing life and seeing the needs of others, he just he just got this navel gazing giving himself to himself so that in the end that all he has left is himself so this is a very lonely person and if all he has left is himself that won't last very long there is no food in the cupboard and he has he has to eat himself to survive and <laughs> that is just interesting I mean you can kind of let the graphic go with that if you want to uh, but that's what happens when somebody is is uh, uh, is lazy and not working, and maybe it's because they're bitter toward the person above them. These rich, evil people—they uh, need to take care of me. That bitterness is a terrible thing. I heard of a definition one time: bitterness is a great feast until you realize it's your own carcass that you're consuming. So. Um, so then David gives, I mean Solomon gives, uh, oh by the way, I think that just reminds us of uh, parents and grandparents, let's teach our kids to work and work for the sake of, well, you know, maybe a goal to get a toy or something, but work for the sake to also give to others. Um, teach your kids to work and to give, from, to, give to others from, what, from how they work. Um, that may be different ways. You know, maybe it's when we have a benevolence offering here or something for children to put a nickel in, in the offering plate or something like that. Okay, so the middle ground, we'll just mention this real quickly. The middle ground between foolish sloth, that is empty hands, and aggressive materialism, two hands that has no meaning because it's striving after the wind, is contentment and peace. That is one handful. So that's in uh, verse uh, 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. So notice five and six both have the idea of hands involved, so they're, they're definitely connected, uh, connected together. So this is the whole idea of contentment, isn't it? I heard somebody talking about contentment. He said, one way to solve contentment is not to get more stuff, but it's to lower your demand and desire for more stuff. I mean, you won't have to have as have as much. Okay, let's keep moving here. Now, the problem of of isolation. This is verses uh, seven through twelve. Let me read verses seven and eight, and just notice what he says there. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks. For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and unhappy. Notice the very clear uh, Hebrew here. You you don't notice it. I'll tell you what it says. Um, I'll put it in the the notes there. This is the lonely, miserly, workaholic. And the, the Hebrew literally says, one person and not a second person. So notice the loneliness there. One person, but not even a second person. Maybe he has no spouse, and the scripture there tells us that he doesn't have uh, children and he doesn't have any siblings. He is all alone. What do you think happened? Why is he alone? <coughs> he was too busy working to make a union. I think that's a good point, Zach. Did you hear that, Zach? He's, he's too busy working you say to make community? To make community or to have a family. Yeah, yeah, he's a workaholic and so um, he didn't have time for family. So, you know, I guess in some ways it could be that they're there but they're not there. Um, or it could be that there's been a family disruption, maybe a divorce or something and they're not there. Not there then. What other reasons could be why he's alive? Well, maybe a death. You know, maybe his wife had died or or his children, or something like that, or maybe they've grown and left the house, uh, and maybe what's happened, he's been so distressed by that that he become he just pours himself in, uh, into his, uh, into his work. So we don't know for sure, but it's a very sad condition that this man is. That, that this man is in. He's all, he's all alone, and. Um, he works all the time. There's no end to his toil. He's working every moment that he can. And but yet his eyes are never satisfied with riches. Why aren't his eyes satisfied with riches? I mean he's probably because riches don't satisfy you. Okay. Not permanently. Okay, they're not permanently satisfied. Yeah. Well, kind of tells you here maybe why why he isn't satisfied um, he never asks, or he never thinks about well who am I doing this for why am I working my fingers off and I've given up all the pleasures of life I think what he's saying is I'm working for pleasures to come you know at retirement or a, whatever you want to put in that slot there I'm not going to mention them because you may have some of those things and they're not sinful in themselves but um, he's really confused about this he says I'm, I'm working I'm, I'm giving up a lot of stuff I'm giving up pleasure and in fact it literally says I'm being I'm depriving myself of things that are good but he didn't have these things that are good he doesn't have them he's depriving himself of them because he doesn't have time he's working all the time so all he's doing is accumulating wealth and he didn't know what to do about that. It's, it's. Uh, if you look back in chapter 13, excuse me, chapter 3. Chapter 3, uh, 13. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure or find good in his toil. This is God's gift to him. And then uh, 2.24 maybe a little clearer there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment that's this word good same word pleasure that we see in in chapter 4 find enjoyment in his toil this also I saw is from the hand of God so um, so the point is he's working hard and he's working 12-15 hours a day 7 days a week um and he thinks it's going to move him toward pleasure, but what he doesn't understand, what Solomon has already said to us, the pleasure of work is the work itself, and that you're working under the under the gaze of God, and you're rejoicing in your word because God gives you that pleasure. He doesn't see that. He thinks pleasure's going to be what he's going to obtain by all of his uh, by all of his work. It's a sad uh, situation. Uh, Doug Wilson is a provocative fellow. I don't agree with everything he says, but he can sure do a zinger, look at that. He could buy dinner for everyone in the restaurant, but no one wants to sit with him. But that's all right, because he did not want to sit with them either. That's kind of funny, but isn't that sad? He pushes people away, and people are pushed away. He pushes away from people. Uh, and that doesn't mean there's not people around. You know, Solomon may be uh, describing himself here as the king. Well, I just want to look at this last book uh, part. First uh, Timothy six six through ten and seventeen through nineteen amazing the parallels in Paul's admonition about people that want to be rich how they pierce themselves through and interestingly at, at the end he says tell the rich people uh, to don't put their confidence in that but give it away <laughs> so it's the same kind of thing that, that Solomon is saying use your riches to serve other people well uh, these uh, verses nine through twelve are just a beautiful passage uh, so here's another, another better way of the statement, the third one in this passage so, so notice notice the two and the one so this is definitely a contrast to what he's just done, I'm talking about the unhappy miserly person because um, now we're not talking about someone that's just one with no other now this one has another and it could be his wife or husband could be just a good friend or a companion um, but the point is uh, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil so maybe they're working together or maybe they're working separately but because they're focused on ministering to each other they have a good reward for their toil so you may say well what is the reward well he gives it he, the outlines right here in the in the text um, well I just You can just look at at my notes there. One, a helping the companion can be a helper in times of difficulty. Um, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who alone, who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. That could be metaphorically, you know, just having a fall in life, a difficulty in life, could be a real fall. I think about Annas. she failed, didn't she, Lee? And no one was there to pick her up. Well, what a sad, graphic uh, illustration of, of this. So, a good companion helps us uh, in difficult times. Maybe could even save your life to, to help pick you up. Um, then warmth on a cold night. Sound like it's time for us to go. So that be that could be literally warmth on a cold night. You may think male, female, but not necessarily. In, in a lot of other cultures, there's not a sex window, induendo here. This is just um, people keeping each other warm. Uh, protection and security in times of violence on the journey of life. Um, in those days, travel was dangerous, and you didn't go by yourself down a, down a dark path uh, in the countryside because of robbers. Kind of reminds you of the story of the Good Samaritan. But if there were two of you, you would not be as susceptible to the into the attack of someone evil. In community, our lives are strong and enduring, <clears throat> like a rope of three strands. The fool's individual life is, by contrast, weak and destined to be broken. Oh good, we can skip over the government thing. <laughs> you can read about it. So here's my takeaway. <clears throat> uh, we need others. We need one another. They are God's gift to us. If you have responsibility for someone, family or friends or whoever it may be, uh, thank God for them. Their need is His blessing to give you meaning and purpose in your world. Turn your eyes away. Let us turn our eyes away from ourselves to love and serve others, especially in the body of Christ. Doing so provides care for them, purpose and health for us, and brings glory to Christ as we love one another. Well, we'll plan on chapter five next, next time.